Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hear me? Can you hear me on the phone? I I've got you coming out of every orifice. <laughs> I'm really not. You're breaking off quite badly. Hello, and welcome to the lock-in, where I finally get to talk to people I want to hear from in a place I want to be, the pub. For some reason, this bloody thing has started playing back some rubbish. Oh, right. Where were we? I forgot. I have two. Let's start with some poetry, some lines of W.H. Auden, not his best, perhaps, but they do the job. To the man in the street, who I'm sorry to say is a keen observer of life, the word intellectual suggests right away a man who's untrue to his wife. I don't even know whether there is a Mrs Runciman, but I do know that David Runciman has led a life of blameless high-table persiflage. He's a professor of politics at Cambridge, and to give him his full moniker, he's Viscount Runciman. So I suppose Mrs R is Viscountess Runciman. Um, David, do you think... I, I suppose you're an intellectual, aren't you? Am I? I think I I feel I'm a mainly a journalist who then got a nice job in a university. Don't you think that uh, that this is just a characteristic British piece of modesty? No one likes to be an intellectual in Britain. Why do you think that is? So I don't think anyone likes to be a public intellectual because it sounds French. I think that's. Um, <laughs> uh, I just I, so that that phrase public intellectual that's the one that's always. I'm a bit wary of that one because it sounds like you've sort of um, deigned to uh, enter the public sphere. So intellectual, fine, but public intellectual, I'd rather not. And yet you write books about why de how democracy ends. I mean, that is that is a public intellectual's role, isn't it, to write books of that kind? Yeah, I mean, I think they're. I mean, they're they're they are written for a, a general audience, not for an academic audience. But that's partly just because. I assume we're all interested in the fate of democracy. I mean, that's not an intellectual subject. That should, should be one for all of us. I mean, the idea is there is, you know, there is quite a lot of writing about politics, which is quite hard to read. Um, I think political science has gone a bit wrong. Um, political science is very hard to read a lot of it. 
Right, let's cut to the chase about, about democracies then. What is your anxiety? So my anxiety is not that it's all about to fall apart. So the, the title of the book, How Democracy Ends, I slightly regret it now because it sounds like I was saying, this is it. <laughs> and there was another book published at roughly the same time called How Democracies Die, which um, was saying this is it, was saying Trump is the end. And mine was um, actually based on something I wrote when Trump got elected, uh, which had as its tagline, this is not how democracy ends. So I didn't think Trump was it. I didn't, definitely didn't think Brexit was it. Um, and I didn't think at any point that we were about to collapse back into fascism or authoritarianism. I thought that the problem with our democracies is that they're stuck, not that they're broken, but that they're just treading water. And um, we've been for a while now living with democracies that are fraying around the edges and really struggling to cope with the, the big challenges that we face, but we don't do anything about it. So it's, uh, you know, it's with a whimper, not with a bang. That's my, that's my concern, despite all the noise. But surely the fact that Donald Trump has gone into history now and been replaced by Joe Biden indicates that democracy does work. Well, it indicates that um, it works at the absolutely minimal level. So, and, and it was, it wasn't touch and go, but there was always a risk with Trump that um, he, he would. Yeah, that was because he wasn't playing by the rules. Yeah, that he would break all the rules, and he broke most of them. But yeah, that you know, there's a there's a famous, and this is a sort of academic argument. There's a famous minimal definition of democracy that says all you need for a democracy is the people in power. If they lose an election, have to leave, and if that happens, it's enough. Well, it probably isn't enough, but it is an absolutely minimal definition of it, and it did happen. So the worst case scenario, which was that he refused to leave, didn't happen. But if that if, if we think that's enough, if we think that we can keep going with this thing just every four years or three years or five years, we switch them around, it's not enough. Um, and another of my anxieties about democracy is that we're just completely fixated on elections um, and the rotation that comes with elections as it. You know, that's what we when we think of democracy, we think that's what it is. That's not enough either. Um, so yeah, it survived. I never thought it wouldn't survive, but it's not thriving. What's your evidence? Uh, so my evidence that it's not thriving is that there's a huge amount of frustration with it. Um, there's unquestionably a lot of anger. There's a lot of polling evidence that uh, people, particularly younger people, have less and less confidence in it. So people under the age of 35, 40, all around the world, when you ask them, do you think this is the best system of government, increasingly say no. They don't embrace, some of them don't anyway, embrace the alternatives, but they, they think, no, it's not working for them. Well, those are just polls, poll schmoles. Um, so you don't think that, uh, you know, 10, 15 years of evidence that compared to what people said in answer to those questions half a generation ago is indicative of a, not a catastrophic decline, nothing's fallen off a cliff, but... Uh, a steady erosion of people's confidence in this. And they'll keep going through the motions. I mean, I think part of the problem with democracy is that we can keep going through the motions with it for ages. Um, we can keep rotating the people at the top. But that underlying sense that the things that we face, climate change, inequality, how do you regulate the tech companies, you know, what's happening to the world that we live in, it, most of it goes unaddressed. It's your right in a democracy to moan, isn't it? Oh, yeah. I mean, and the moaning is 
um, is part of it. And it is also true that for all the time that we've had these kinds of democracies, sort of 100 years, there have been people like me, public intellectuals, uh, saying it's all falling apart. So you can find, I think you can find for every year from the last 100 years, someone who's either writing or thinking about writing a book called This Is How Democracy Ends. So it's absolutely, you know, the sky's falling in is a sign that you're living in a democracy because you're allowed to say it. But just because people have been saying it forever doesn't mean that it's never worth saying. And I don't think the sky's falling in, but I do think that these these established democracies, the ones that we have in Britain and America and Western Europe, are really creaky. They're really clunky. They're really out of date. And they don't change. I mean, the thing about them is that if you, you know, you and I, 20, 30, 40 years ago, looking at this way of doing politics, the way we do it now is completely familiar to us. I mean, you tell me, you, you talking to these politicians forever, but it's completely familiar. It's unchanged. The sort of the, the, the style of it is unchanged while everything else has changed. I mean, the world from 1980 to now is completely transformed and the politics is unchanging. It's unvarying. Well, we could talk about that. We could talk about what's what's the same and what's different for a long time. But don't you think that Brexit was a demonstration that people do care about democracy? It was definitely a demonstration, I think, that given the chance, including lots of people, millions of people who don't normally vote in elections, given the chance to express a view on something where the answer eventually becomes the policy, which is not true in general elections, people will take that opportunity, as they did in Scotland as well, and as they will do in the next Scottish referendum. There's no, I think there's no doubting the enthusiasm that people have to take part when they're given a serious question and the answer counts. But it's incredibly rare. I mean, the thing about Brexit, the thing about the Scottish independence referendum is most people were struck by how unlike it felt regular, routine, electoral democracy because it wasn't it wasn't about choosing representatives was it no and it wasn't about rotating the cast list it was about a question that was you know eventually it turned out to be true there was there was a bit of a wobble a question that was promised to be a question that if the answer came back the way that the representatives didn't like they would still act on it and that was democracy i don't think referendums are pure democracy and representative democracy isn't but it definitely was democracy but it was also pretty um, fractious and ugly. And there's not a huge appetite for more of it. I mean, there's not a huge appetite for doing those kinds of referendums over and over again. So where do we, you know, where do we find an outlet for that real democratic energy? It's not happening in, it's not happening in Parliament. Where do we find it? So part of my sort of argument here is that we call this thing democracy, that it's pretty recent. So it's not ancient democracy, it's not classic democracy, it's an invention of the last hundred years and it involves the thing that we call democracy. At most it's a hundred years old and it involves political parties, you know, mass franchise elections so everyone gets a vote, sort of mass communication campaigns, professional politicians, a professional political class um, and a kind of rotation. And we call that democracy and we think that's the only way of doing it. And so if that gets into trouble, or if it gets to be creaky and stale and makes people angry, as it has done in the past few years, we throw our hands up and go, oh my God, if this falls apart, it'll be fascism next. And so we kind of think it's this either or thing, either this thing that we call democracy that we've had for 
you know, our lifetimes, but not that much more than our lifetimes, or it's the abyss. Whereas there's probably a hundred ways of doing democracy, um, and we never try any of them. So yes, we had a referendum, that was a, a different way of doing it, and we tried that. But all the different ways <clears throat> that you could involve people in politics, <clears throat> all the different ways you could ask them, consult them, and that kind of wave that lasted for a few years in the 1990s, that this new technology was going to kind of open democracy up to all sorts of opportunities for people to take part and be involved. And then it, people realised that that was all a bit utopian and they gave up on it. But the idea that we're living in this world where you and I are talking like this, and yet all democracy can be is the thing that it was in about 1953, seems to me ridiculous. Why don't we try? Why don't we try all kinds of, I don't know, citizens' juries or other kinds of deliberation, participation? Why don't we try different political parties? Why don't we try different electoral systems? Why don't we empower local government? Why don't we let children vote, which is something I believe in? Why don't we do anything? But we don't. We never change it because we think if we tinker with it, it'll collapse into its opposite. It won't. Well, there's plenty of reasons for, that we don't, for example, allow children to vote. What, what, what do you think they are? Well, I think that, you, that, that uh, with rights come responsibilities. And if you're not, if, you, if we accept that the age of criminal responsibility is not the same for children as it is for adults, that criminal responsibility is something that is only tenable by adults, mm. then I don't see why children who do not have to live very much with the consequences of their actions should be allowed to vote. Well, children have to live with the consequences of our actions. I mean, so it's, you know, there's, there's part of the evidence for the, you know, the, this growing dissatisfaction among younger people with this system of government is that feeling that the world that's being created by it, which they'll live in and we won't because we'll be dead, is one over which they have very little control. But also we don't ask of adults that uh, they should demonstrate responsibility before we let them vote. I mean, essentially, we let anyone vote. We should. We should stop all sorts of people voting. OK, so that's the, the other way it goes. So when I've occasionally suggested this, the, the, the answer that comes back is not that we should let children vote, that we, but we should stop older people voting. You know, because you know, part of it is obviously we don't have a senility test. Um, so we allow anyone to vote right up until the day they die. And you know, the basic principle, one person, one vote. It, I think it makes a lot of people uncomfortable, the thought that you have to pass a test, a sort of driving test to be allowed to do it. So if you don't, I mean, maybe you think you should, but if you don't, then why not let children vote too? And what would the harm be? I mean, what... Would you make children pass this test? No, I wouldn't make anyone take the test. I, so, I would. Right, well, if you would, how would you... Uh, how do you think you would get on taking votes away from people over the age of... You know, people who have had the vote, having it taken away from them? I would, don't have a problem think, with that at all. Right. Which do you think would be more disruptive? Taking votes away from people or enfranchising people? And it, part of the argument is, if you look at the history of democracy, it periodically gets stuck in the way that it is stuck now. It gets kind of stale and people are increasingly frustrated with it. And usually the best way out of that is to find some new group of people to enfranchise. So over its history, you enfranchise Catholics and Jews or the poor or women or in the United States, you make civil rights real. And then now we've reached a point, and I say it in the book that you referred to, I thought a couple of years ago, well, we cut, that's not a solution for us because we've run out of people to enfranchise unless we enfranchise, you know, robots or animals. And then I thought, well, we haven't. You know, there is, you know, 
over the course of a lifespan, there's a group of people who don't get to vote. And what would be the harm? And when you when you think about what would be the harm, I can't think there is one. I mean, if children could vote, it's not like that much would change. And the arguments that were made against women voting, which what were they didn't own property, they didn't pay tax, they would just do what their husbands say and so on. But the evidence when you enfranchise new groups of people is that not that much changes. Same kind of people get elected. I don't think children are going to get into parliament because the adults won't vote for them. But politics gets a jolt of energy and it gets a jolt of, um, you know, it gets a surprise, a, a different feel to it. And I think the main problem with our democracy is that it's really stale. Can you imagine the sort of children who would decide to devote their lives to politics? They'd be like, they'd make William Hague in that incarnation at the Tory party yeah. conference. He would be awful. They'd all be awful like that. Yeah, but I'm only saying that they should be allowed to vote. I'm not, I'm not saying they should be in Parliament. So they should, all they should be allowed to do is what we get to do, which is once every few years have an, a token ability to express our view and kick the bastards out. At we what age? Oh, I would say it's six. Six. Yeah, why not? I mean, once they're in school, so you want it to be criminal responsibility. I think once they're in school and can read and write, but they do, that wouldn't have to be the test because we don't test whether adults can read and write before we let them vote. We don't test anyone. And that's probably for the good. I, I, you're looking... I don't think it is for the good. No, you... I think it's for the bad. You, so you'd have a literacy test as well? I'd have literacy, numeracy, and I would have consideration of civics so with the brexit vote uh as i'm you know th there were lots of different ways in which it came out and people tried to pass the result but th the thing that emerged most clearly was that level of education was the biggest driver of how people were likely to vote so whether or not you had a degree basically was the big dividing line 70 plus percent of people graduates voted remain nearly 70% of people who didn't go to university voted leave. So if you introduce your whatever it is education test, you make that worse. You, and the Brexit vote, as you were saying, was a real expression of democracy. That was, you know, one person, one vote. Your vote counts, doesn't matter who you are, doesn't matter where you're from. If they all add up and you get more than the other side, you win. You can't introduce any kind of test at that point as to who qualifies for a vote. Surely not. As long as I'm making the rules, it's fine. <laughs> I would love to see you try, Jeremy. I'd love to see you introduce a literacy test at the ballot box. Um, it would be anyway, perfectly so simple to do. You think? And you get a lot of unlettered people burning down polling stations, I suppose. And do you, and do you think that the educated understood the Brexit vote better than the less educated? No, I just think they led more privileged lifestyles. So why would they be the ones then who get more votes? If on your test, you know, you have to be qualified to vote, you have to show some civics education understanding, you would be excluding a lot of the less privileged. You're making a very big assumption there, which is that only, only stupid, uneducated people voted for Brexit. No, no. I'm, I, so I'm, what I'm saying is based on all the evidence that we have. Not at all. It's not at all about intelligence and stupidity. Many of the quote unquote most intelligent people I know that I work with had no understanding of what was going on. Everyone votes as a tribe. The educated are a tribe. The graduates are a tribe. It's all tribal. 
But if you introduce a test which favours one tribe over the other, favours the educated over the less educated, it's just discrimination. There are thousands and thousands of tribes. Fishermen are a tribe. Yeah, but the two big tribes in our politics... Have you seen those maps of the last general election? Yes. Oh, yeah, no, the ones where, uh, you know, if it was only the over 65s, every single seat in the country would have voted Conservative. And if it was only the under 25s or 30s, Corbyn would have won the biggest landslide in British political history. The old and the young, that's increasingly tribal. Graduates and non-graduates, there are lots of other tribes too, but those two tribes divide up the electoral map. Yes. And it's, you know, it's, I'm not saying it's a, for better or for worse, but if one of the tests of whether you're allowed to vote goes along those tribal lines... And one of the reasons for giving children the vote, I think, is that there are too many, uh, you know, it's unbalanced if it's young versus old. The young keep losing. Yes, the young do keep losing, and I've been surprised that there has not been any unrest at all, as far as I can see, in this business of the young suffering in order that old people can be kept alive. And it's, you know, it's, it's a pattern of the last 20, 30 years, so because older voters tend to decide elections. A lot of government policy favours the old over the young, pensions over tuition fees and so on. Older people yeah. vote, that's the reason. They do vote, but even if all the younger people voted, the older people would still win. But yeah, it's true. I mean, there's a, you know, is it that if only students could be asked to get out of bed and vote, the result would be different? Or is the reason that they don't vote, they know that they're going to lose anyway? Anyway, but this year, whatever that's been going on for 30 years is now turbocharged. So now we have you know, a, a politics where young people have suffered so that old people can live. And like you, I would be amazed if over the next three or four years that doesn't become a huge driver of anger in democracy. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at MintMobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. 
That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The most content societies, according to your book, are those Scandinavian ones that are more equal, and Switzerland, of course. Yeah, the ones that come top of the happiness surveys. I mean, other people tend to call them the most content and possibly the most boring. You know, it uh, depends what you mean by content. There's a kind of placidity to them. Even they are increasingly a bit fractious around the edges and also increasingly a bit unequal. And all of them, I mean, it doesn't matter whether it's us or Denmark, the last year is going to have opened up big divides because of the just the way in which the harms of the last year have been unevenly doled out. Are you worried? No, I mean, in a way, I think um, if, if the problem is the one that I think it is, which is that our democracies are tired and stale. You know, I say in the book, it's you know, our democracies are kind of late middle-aged and wondering what to do with the years that they have left. What they need is is a jolt of energy. And... You know, so much of the energy in our world doesn't go through politics. It goes round politics and outside politics. You know, we're, we're living lives that have a kind of craziness to them online and you know, all sorts of ways in which we now interact with each other. But the politics still feels tired and stale. I think the next few years, the last few years have been pretty exciting. The next few years could be even more dramatic and surprising. And I, I also really feel strongly that um, the last year of COVID is, is a sort of phony war. So a lot of people have been surprised that it hasn't been more, like you said, there hasn't been more unrest. There hasn't been more anger. You know, polling is very consistent, the government and Johnson and Starmer, it's always sort of 40-40, Biden versus Trump. Though Trump lost, you know, people thought that he would be obliterated. People turned out for a vote for him. It didn't feel like a huge amount changed. It will change in the next three or four years. Like the long COVID effects of this on politics are going to be profound. I think it's like the financial crisis. So the financial crisis, you know, gave us Obama in the first instance, but five years later, ten years later, it gave us Brexit and Trump. And this is going to, over the next five years, unquestionably have profound impacts. And I'm excited. I mean, it's going to be interesting. Do you not excited by the possibility of real, like that that kind of politics that you? you've been observing, interrogating for the last 30, 40 years. Do you, do you not want to see it shaken up? I do want to see it shaken up. Mainly, I want to see the political class shaken up. Yeah. We have a terrible, terrible choice in representative democracies, as far as I can see. Yeah. And I think the way to, you know, there's that thing of, um, you know, whatever, I can't remember, what is that phrase where to keep doing the same thing and hoping it'll be different is the definition of madness. When we do that, that's, you know, our fixation on elections, we think, well, maybe the next election will sort it, you know, we'll find the right people. But we never change the system. We never change the way we do it. And we're doing it roughly the same way that we've done it for a lifetime. How would you change it? Apart from letting children vote. Um, yeah, so I would, first of all, I would experiment a lot more. I mean, try out new things. 
So a referendum is one way to try and involve people, a national referendum on a big constitutional question. And there probably will be more of those. I mean, there's going to be a Scottish one. There's probably going to be an Irish border poll at some point, and then there'll be a Welsh one, and then there'll have to be consultations in England about how England governs itself and so on. That will then need to lead, presumably, to some kind of constitutional rethink. The constitutional rethink should itself be democratic in some way. I would randomise it more. I'd involve people more you know, in the old-fashioned democratic way by just picking people and giving them real decisions to make. I would abolish the House of Lords and replace it with something else, something that wasn't just the political class. I would have citizens' assemblies of various kinds taking important decisions. I mean, there, there are lots of things we could do. We don't at the moment do any of them. Well, the case for abolishing the House of Lords, for example, and replacing it with something sensible is unanswerable. I agree. And it's been unanswerable for about 100 years. And we, didn't, we haven't done anything about it, which makes one wonder whether this system of government is very good at reforming itself. And the answer is it's terrible at reforming itself. So democracy has many virtues, but changing how it does its own politics. Look at the United States. People have said the Electoral College is a problem for about 100 years too. Um, they worried about the Senate being unrepresentative. It doesn't change. Is Biden going to change it? No, because he's got better things to do. They always have better things to do because it's boring and you know the public don't care about changing the system, so the system doesn't change. If you don't change it, it will slowly die. Slowly. Do you see any sign that people are more enamoured of fascist sort of arrangements? Mm, no. <laughs> I mean, I mean there, you know, there's, there have been moments, and, and not so much in this country, but I think, you know, the, fr the fringes of what's going on in Trump's America has fascist echoes. There was a fascist party in the Greek parliament after the financial crisis, Golden Dawn, but they, you know, they, they burn out. Um, I think in a way, the really interesting thing is I don't think fascism, I mean, fascism is always a threat in the sense there are always people who are willing to espouse it and it's best to keep them at bay. But, you know, the, the real rival to contemporary democracy is not fascism, it's, it's Chinese-style state control. Um, and it, no one really knows what to call that. Well, it is a form of fascism, isn't it? Is it? I mean, it's not... Um, if it is, it's very... Uh, it's very sort of veiled. I mean, it's, it's technocratic. It's highly technocratic. Um, it's very autocratic. Um, it's... I mean, I think the name I give it in the book is autocratic state capitalism, which is a sort of horrible academic name. But it's hard to know what to call it. Um, but it seems to be, it, it, you know, it's a rival in the sense, it's not a massive ideological rival. There aren't that many people, you don't hear people in Britain saying, well, democracy doesn't work, we should do it like the Chinese do it. There aren't a lot of fellow travellers of the Chinese Communist Party in Britain, I don't think. But it's a rival in the sense that it seems to work and do some things better, other things much worse. Well, how does it work? Uh, it's made the Chinese population much, much richer, much, much quicker than any society in hum human history. Um, life expectancy, you know, on those basic measures, it works. To this point, it's been stable. You know, over the 40 years of the opening up of the Chinese economy and society, if you look at the two great powers in the world now, the United States of America and China, they compete. I mean, they, you know, this is a, this is a, it's a real competition almost in the ways that even the Soviet Union in America wasn't because America just won that one hands down. 
but the Chinese system looks to me more robust, partly because it's more pragmatic. Um, but it's not a, it's not a kind of you know, fascism, communism in the 20th century. You know, they they persuaded people that they were the sort of you know the flags of the future. They they for the people who fell for them, those were grand visions. China isn't that kind of grand vision. It's just the other way of doing it, and it's going to keep going. It's just looking after number one on a grand scale, isn't it? Yeah, it's it's sort of doing what we do, looking after number one, but it's doing it more effectively than any rival system has. And in many parts of the world, it genuinely is the rival. You know, if you're if you're a an African government struggling to survive, do you do you hitch your wagon to Beijing or Brussels or Washington? Beijing, probably. That's where the money is. Um, so in those, in that sense, you know, democracy does not own the future by any means. No, and clearly, if you look at countries like countries in Africa, for example, if you look at the cornering of natural resources, the Chinese yeah. have got a long-term vision. They do. And there are people, I, I know people, you probably know people who... You know, they, they go to China, they come back and they go, oh my God, it's amazing that they took this city and they sort of greened it overnight because they didn't have to consult the people. So they, you know, they, they got rid of the cars or they stuck in the bike lanes or they abolished the factories or whatever, at the same time as building many, many more you know, coal-fired factories out of sight. But there's that feeling that for something like climate change, if you have to act, the Chinese system has advantages. And you hear that. You hear that from people who don't say, I wish we ran our society like they do but they come back from China and they go oh my god maybe that's the system that will actually be able to tackle this because it doesn't have to consult it doesn't have to worry about public opinion have any of your friends ever come back from China and said gosh I wish I was Chinese no um not that I can, not that I can think of I yeah I I'm trying to think has anyone come back I mean I no, no one's come back. And also that you don't hear people coming back often and saying, I'm upping sticks and moving there. Um, what, the, what they get is that sense that there are, you know, in, in a democratic system like ours that seems on some of the big questions to be stuck, there's, a, there's always been this kind of appeal to dictatorship, this appeal to decisive politics. And it has a kind of, not a glamour to it, but it has a pull to it. It always has, and you can hear it, you can feel it now, that sense that what if the problems we face are the kind that we don't have time to consult over? Then people come back from China and they say, well, they've got an advantage. But no, I don't think they come back and say, this is how we want to live. And the comparison with the greening of a city overnight, for example, that you mentioned, mm. is trying to build a high-speed rail link, which takes forever in this country. Yeah. Less yeah. time than it takes in France. Because we consult. Because we consult, and, because, and that's a good and because, thing, isn't it? And, and because representatives say, not in my backyard. You know, even the Prime Minister will will make sure that whatever it is doesn't go through his constituency. That's how it works. It has huge advantages. It protects people. Um, you know, if you slow things down, in theory, you get fewer bad decisions. But we live in a world where some decisions can't take that long. And it seems to me that of all of those things, the one that really agitates people is the thought that... What if the Western democracies take their time coming up with a solution to the problem of climate change that feels right for their citizens? And over those 30 years, the problem becomes insolvable. That, that 
I don't think you have to be a kind of green activist to have that nagging anxiety at the back of your mind. Even if you think some of the risks of climate change have been overblown, even if you think that on the whole, you know, technology and Western innovation and capitalism will kind of find solutions. 20, 30 years, which is sort of probably the cycle in which democracies finally get their act together on these huge questions, that might be too slow. If that's true, then democracy will have failed. It's had, democracy's had a fantastic 100-year run. You know, the 20th century was the democratic century. At the start of it, the democracies were all really struggling. There weren't many of them, and they tended to fall apart when you sort of, you know, huffed and puffed. When Hitler huffed and puffed, most of them fell over. By the end of the 20th century, they were dominant. Their citizens tended to be happier. They were richer. But there's no guarantee that the 20th century story is the 21st century story. But with something, like climate, with something like climate change, I don't think the solution is to embrace the Chinese greening of a city overnight. But I think it is to take these democratic institutions and to think that there's a real risk in just carrying on doing the same thing over and over again in the hope that eventually we'll stumble on the solution. Take people's rights away from them? No, but bring no, the opposite. Bring them in. Give them more rights. Um, give, them, give them more of a say. Give, and it, you know, it may be that people... You know, the, the politics becomes much more fractious. There are huge it would divisions. Take forever that are going to, to open do up. anything. What if you give gay people more to say? Not if you gave them d- decisions as well. So at the moment, it's consultation, representation, election, waiting for the next electoral cycle to see what we do. The referendum showed if you give people a decision, they might decide. And there is quite a lot of evidence that if you ask people and give them responsibility for choices about climate change, they take more radical options. You know, even in Texas. You ask people what they want to do, you know, not politicians, regular people. They turn out to be surprisingly willing to do things differently. Politicians aren't. Politicians are scared, you know it. Politicians are mainly scared of the future. Can I ask you about something else, which is, in this book, you say that Mark Zuckerberg is a bigger threat to democracy than Donald Trump. Do you still think that? Well, definitely, because Trump's gone and Zuckerberg is still there. (laughs) I mean, you know, on that basic level, Facebook fails the minimal democracy test because you don't get a peaceful transfer of power. So here's a, I mean, there are a couple of reasons I say that, one of which is simply that whatever you think about Trump, ultimately he was more accountable. He is more accountable. But secondly, I actually sometimes think that the really dangerous people are the people who don't know that they're bad. You know, Trump, I think Trump had a pretty clear sense for all his narcissism of who he was and... indeed, of some of the things that he wanted to do that people wouldn't like. But I think Zuckerberg genuinely believes he's a good guy. And he has a power that is, you know, even he probably doesn't understand. Um, Good, naive, well-intentioned people with power they don't understand, who are also unaccountable, and whose business runs on a business model that can't be changed, because it's basically he's in the advertising business. I think potentially over the 10, 20, 30 years, that's scarier. What do you fear that he might be able to do? So I don't think he's going to do... I, I, I don't know him. I've never met him. I don't know anything about him, really. I'm, I, I imagine he's a decent guy. I don't think he wants to do anything bad. I, you know, when he, when he makes those, um, which he periodically does, those kind of personal statements of his mission, I'm sure he believes it, that he wants to connect the world and make us all happier and better off. So it's not what he will do but he's created this platform on which all sorts of things are possible that no one really understands or, or can control. Um, he's not accountable for it, not clear who is accountable for it. And you know, in, in relation to politics, you know, Facebook's not going to replace the state um, 
they were going to have their own money recent and then i think they've given up on that you know they're not they haven't got an army they haven't got money so they don't have the two main weapons of political control um states are still more powerful than than facebook but so much of what matters for politics passes through facebook and it is relatively speaking uncontrolled it's out of control so it's not what he's going to do but it's what he might allow he's a democrat both small d and big d yeah no he believes in it all but he believes in it all but he has a power and he has a reach and his his network and and even though you know people come off facebook but then he buys up all the rivals so it's whatsapp and it's instagram it's all of it he's a monopolist this is a kind of monopoly of information it's a monopoly of news and my fear about it is that it's like a, it's like a machine that no one quite understands which is scarier in some way than a narcissistic, you know, orange-faced septuagenarian who wants to make America great again. You, with Trump, whatever you think about him, it's absolutely clear what he's about, what the threat is. The threat was not hard to spot. With Zuckerberg, I think it's much, much harder to know. So there's, there's the possibility that that's the more dangerous thing. And he's going to be around for 50 years, long after Trump is not just gone but dead. You sound like an old Tory. No, the whole think... world is going to hell in a handcart. No, no. I, so the, the way in which I'm definitely not a Tory, I would say, is that, um, so I don't think it's going to hell. I think it's stuck. And what I want to do is unstick it. So it, if you're a Tory, what you think is, well, even though it's stuck, it would be too dangerous to do too much because the real risk is that it all falls apart. I think the real risk is that we don't do anything. And so it just kind of drifts off. And so that we should do more with it. Um, and to the Tories that I meet are very uncomfortable with the thought that what we should do with, say, the United Kingdom, our constitution, our electoral system, our way of being governed, is to experiment with it, bring people in, randomise it. So it's not, I don't think that's Toryism. I mean, some Tories are up for it, but not many. I think I'm a Tory. I think I'd be up for it. Would you, would you, if you could do what, if you could pull a lever and just, so if you want to change the political class, because you think that they're a big part of the problem, and if you could make one big change, what would yours be? So mine is votes for children. I just think it would really put them on the Mine toes. would be, you've got what to be qualified be? to vote. You've got to pass a test. And do you think, so on that one, you know, one of the things that came out after Brexit is the, one of the ways in which Parliament is unrepresentative is everyone in it now went to university, bar a few, but you know, bar a handful. Having a degree is an entry requirement for professional politics. So we have a representative class who are like half the population, but not like the other half. So don't you think there's a case the other way, which is that sort of on that paper qualification, they're overqualified. You know, once Parliament had farmers and trade unionists and soldiers and all sorts in it, and now it just has identical graduates. So couldn't you make the so couldn't you make the case the other way? And you know you've got to find routes into decision making for people who don't meet the conventional qualifications. Well, that's the fault of the political parties, isn't it? That they all choose these identical bores. And if you want to get on in politics, you do join a political party when you're at university, and then go on trying out for you know unwinnable yeah. seats and so on and so on and so on. And so to start with, you have to have been at university to even get on the ladder. Yeah. 
But I wonder if we're being a bit sort of romantic in thinking that Parliament used to be made up of this great assortment of people. I mean, I'm sure a bit. Farmers, trade unionists and soldiers. It's it's a bit, apart from anything else, it's all a bit male and sort of red-faced and like gammony, I'm sure it would seem to the um, some of the people who vote today. But it was definitely more varied, no question. It was, you know, back then it was all men. Um, so it's more varied in other ways and it was all white. So it's all married, varied in other ways now. But as, you know, as a professions and social makeup, Parliament is not a varied institution now. No, I agree. It's very dull. Yeah. So we need to do something about it. So what are we going to do? Get regular people in there. Abolish the House of Lords, replace it with a some kind of a body which is just made up of randomly selected people and give them some real power. But you'd only ever get in it people who wanted to be there. Not if it was random. So what, so another thing I would do, if you gave me a magic wand, so at the next general election, I would have on the ballot paper, none of the above. You could tick none of the above. And then if you tick none of the above and none of the above wins, so say none of the above you know, gets elected, then all the people who tick that get put in a big box. One of them gets pulled out and that person becomes the MP. That's a really interesting idea. I mean, I'm with you. I, I've I've got as far as the none of the above, but there would, and that's an absolute requirement. So it would it would put you on the spot a bit that if you ticked it, there would be a one in ten thousand chance or whatever that you would become an MP. But also, then you would get a parliament which was a mix of professionals and you know, random disgruntled people. And then the next election, it'd be very interesting to see whether none of the above did so well. Might do better, might do worse, but at least it would, you know. Again, it's not going to, any more than six-year-olds voting. It's not going to happen. But the idea that these are somehow crazy, dangerous ideas in a world where we're doing some crazy, dangerous things all the time, uh, but not with our politics. These are gentle, playful ideas. And yet people tend to be horrified. They get horrified at the thought of children voting, horrified at the thought of random people being in Parliament. How is that more horrifying than having Donald Trump as President of the United States? Well, he is none of the above, isn't he? <laughs> and he's no longer president of the United States. Yeah. OK, well, thank you very much indeed, David. You look after yourself. And you nourish those crazy, dangerous ideas. <laughs> Playful ideas. Yeah, I will do. <laughs> Thanks, Jeremy. Well, there you are. Viscount David Runciman, the professorial podcast sensation and fearless democracy tinkerer. No doubt our MPs are clamouring to try out his playful ideas. If you want to hear more of his ideas, you could do a lot worse than listen to his Talking Politics podcast. Next week, we have a legendary educator and so-called superhead, Sir William Atkinson. I'm looking forward to that one too. Do join us. And in the meantime, if you don't stay safe, I will set Boris Johnson onto you. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... 
Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.